Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your wonderful goodness, Lord. I thank you that you've provided us this place where we can gather this evening, Lord, and I thank you for all those, Lord, that have come to hear, Lord, and the ones listening online and the other places that this may go. Lord, I thank you for my many brothers and sisters, Lord, who love you, who love your words above all else. And Father, I pray as we look at the scriptures tonight that you could help us, Lord, to see you through your word, Lord. Open the eyes of our heart. Lord, our chief desire, my chief desire, O Lord, is to know you. Open the eyes of our understanding and help us, Lord, to see your glory. Let it be, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's... It's good to be with you all tonight. It's uh, wonderful to see everyone's out, and I do want to pass along just a few messages. Um, Brother James from South Africa is doing really well. The Lord's worked wonderfully in his situation, and he's, uh, he's back on his feet and doing just a tremendous work there with the saints in South Africa. So we just thank God for that. And also I had uh, talked earlier in the week to Brother Solomon over in Israel. And uh, there's been several terrorist attacks over there lately, and some not very far from his fellowship. So you just keep them in prayer, and he's going to be traveling before long to visit some different brothers and churches to tell them some of the truth of the things that we know and just pray for him. God's using him too. And I know God's work moving, he's working, and fruit is being brought forth from, uh, from the things that are being done. So I just thank God and... I pray he has his perfect way and we can fit in into whatever way he'd have for us. And just one other note, this will be the last uh, Friday that we're going to have services on Friday. That we're going to continue doing our Sunday morning things the way that we have been and uh, for the past year or so. But we'll move our Friday night, fellowship, Friday night fellowships to Sunday evenings. Uh, there's been uh, quite a few others that have wanted to join us, or several others anyway, and uh, Fridays haven't been working out real well for them, so we're going to switch over to Sunday, and uh, just let you all know they're listening online too, that's what we'll be doing. Uh, five o'clock, five o'clock on Sunday evenings, uh, Eastern Standard Time. And so the next service after this one will be Sunday, April 24th, Great. I think we all talked about it, and I think that's going to work for us all, and... So I know uh, when we started doing these fellowships on Friday evenings, uh, I know we especially had kind of somewhat in mind for the people who are trapped in certain conditions and are looking for a way out. And I know for some people how hard it is to get away from certain groups of people and they see how uh, others are treated. And I just pray that God will break bonds for people and help them to break free of, of the things that have hold of them. It's certainly not a, a godly way that some people are, are being treated today. But I know that uh, God knows all of our hearts. He knows the hearts of everyone out there that will hear this and is here and now. And we just pray that God will deliver you. And only thing I would say is just do your best. You know, there, there are places that uh, that's all I ask. Just do your best. Do your best for the Lord. And so long as your heart's in Christ and you're in Christ Jesus, your soul is secure. That's what I believe in my heart. So just do your best and you do what's best for you and your circumstances. And so the title of my message tonight is Jesus at Gethsemane. And in my last message, I started looking at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And tonight I'll be starting out in the book of Mark, if you want to turn there. And in my last message, we began with the betrayal of Christ in examining the character of Judas. 
And we'll pick up tonight about where we left off, and maybe I'll just summarize a little bit. And after Judas, after he went out into the night and was on his way to finalize his betrayal of Christ, Jesus there in the upper room, he spoke some more to his disciples. He shared with them the the details of how he was a fulfillment of the type of the Passover lamb, letting us know that he was going to die for our sins. And Brother Jesse covered that really wonderful in his last message uh, with all the different types. And that really forms the background of everything that's going on here, the, the unfolding drama of Jesus from the upper room to Gethsemane to the trial to the cross to the resurrection. All of those things are, are the background because everything Jesus was going through was a fulfillment of patterns laid out by God in the Old Testament. All the way back to the very beginning when God made that coat of skins to cover the sin of Adam and Eve, God was laying out a pattern from the very beginning showing it was going to take a life to produce something to cover sins. And it was going to take that blood, blood. And the penalty we know for sin is death. And the only way to atone for sin is death, death. And to atone for your sin or to atone for my sin, somebody has to die. And it's either going to be me or you to die for your own sin, or it's going to be Jesus dying for our sin. Someone has to die and go to hell for the sin that's in our lives. And you know, if if it's us, there's no coming back from hell, is there? No. But when we trust on Jesus to atone for our sin, what he conquered death, hell, and the grave. Amen. And in him we can live in peace. We can have peace. Jesus, as that spotless lamb, his innocent blood, atoned for our sins. And the fact that Jesus is following that exact pattern that was laid out in the Old Testament, it's one of the ways that God gives us to authenticate and verify he was who he claimed to be. Jesus didn't just go about things any old random way, right? But he fulfilled prophecy. He fulfilled a pattern that was laid out before. And he did it not just for one pattern or not just for one prophecy, but for hundreds, for hundreds of them. And he did it in an undeniable way. That's why the apostle, or rather Luke, could write that Jesus offered many infallible proofs of who he was. Acts chapter 1, many infallible proofs. And those proofs played an important role For the early believers. You know, it's not wrong to ask for proof, (laughs) right? There are people who maybe abuse scripture and tell you it's wrong to ask for proof. Well, they just don't really know what they're talking about. Jesus was happy to leave behind infallible proofs. And even to this day, there's very solid evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. And it's not something that we have to believe merely by blind faith, but our faith is based on something. We heard the word, we heard the truth, we understood the truth, and that brought us to our faith. Faith that's based on nothing, that might not really be faith. It just might be foolishness. (laughs) You know it? Blind faith might not really be faith at all. You know, the scripture says that the spirit of truth will lead you into all truth. right? And if we got the spirit of truth in us, guess what it's going to do? It's going to lead us into the truth behind our faith, right? The Spirit of God will not lead you into blind faith. It will lead you into truth on which your faith 
is based. And faith based on Jesus, faith based on the Word of God, that's a true faith. Hallelujah. God don't ask us to have blind faith based on nothing. God gives us His Word and He gives us everything we need to base our faith on. Hallelujah. And maybe we'll get to that in, in another message sometime, but I'll just maybe leave that there. But just for just know Jesus here, he's, he's doing and fulfilling a pattern, showing an evidence of who he is because he's fulfilling these things to the T. Right. Jesus proved who he was. There's no question about it. He was the Messiah, the one and only Savior of mankind. And as Jesus there, he finished relating a framework of these things to the disciples in the upper room, how he was fulfilling those things. It says they sang a hymn together, and then they started off together to take a walk. And as they walked, Jesus told them very many things. He told them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He told them about being fruitful. He gave them the great commandment, telling them to love one another like he loved them. And he took his time and he prayed for them one of the most powerful prayers in the whole Bible that he prayed for them. And I'd love to look at all those things sometime too, and maybe one day we will. But finally, Jesus and his disciples, they finished walking and they got to their destination. And turn with me again to Mark chapter 14, and starting at verse 32. And we'll read the verses I want to focus on here tonight. And they came to the place which was called Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And he saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh, and he findeth them sleeping. And he saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest thou not watch one hour? Watch ye and pray lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. And when he cameth the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. As we read these verses, Jesus, he's staring at the prospect of what's going to happen over just the next few hours of his life. Jesus is contemplating the torturous death he was about to face. The next hours of Jesus' life were going to be his hardest. He was going to be beaten beyond recognition. He was going to be humiliated and degraded in every conceivable way. And when it was all over, Jesus was going to die a painful, agonizing death. 
It's something very brutal, something very extreme that Jesus was about to face. And in some ways, you and I, we can never truly fully relate to what Jesus faced. The extreme nature of what he faced certainly goes beyond any trial that, or situation I've ever faced, that's for sure. But although he's facing a situation here that is a, a magnitude greater than anything we might have faced, there are things in Jesus' passion which we can relate to ourselves. And there's a reason these things are called the passion of Christ. It's because he was passionate during it. You know, passion, if you look up that word, it means emotions that can barely be controlled. Passion is an overwhelming overflow of emotions. And there are things here in this story which are common to all men. There are lessons we can draw for our own comfort, for our own strength, and that chiefly is what I would like to focus on this evening. And we realize tonight is Good Friday. This is the day that Jesus died. By this point in the day, Jesus was in the grave. And while no single person can fully relate to what Jesus was facing here, there are aspects that everyone can relate to. At its most basic, Jesus is facing death. And you know, there's not yet been a single sane person who's not grieved by the prospect of their own death, right? Thinking of death is not something any natural, normal, I'll say normal person likes to do, right? Man is programmed almost to not even consider the thought because it's such an ugly thing to think about. And you know, if you run into someone who's not grieved by the prospect of death, you might want to check and make sure he's not a Jim Jones kind of character. (laughs) You know what I mean? Truly, there is joy in knowing what waits beyond for the saints of God, but there is also a grief that accompanies death. Because death brings separation, and separation brings sorrow. And there are many people that have certainly faced terrible deaths as Christians. Paul was beheaded. Peter and Andrew were crucified. Thomas was stoned. There were martyrs that were eaten by lions, trampled by beasts, roasted, alive, cut to pieces, killed in every way you can imagine. There's plenty of traumatic and extreme ways that Christians have died. And even in our own day, there are Christians who, in this world, face martyrdom for believing on Christ. I I heard a a story about North Korea. There was a family, or there was teachers at school, and they come into the school, and they ask all the children, they hold up a picture of a Bible, and they say, does any of you have one of these in your house? And every kid that said yes, mommy and daddy was gone when they got home that night. Every one of them that said, yeah, I got one of those in my house. There's countries like that still in the world. And you think even the things we see on the news here recently over in Ukraine, they're finding people that's just been tortured to death even. And no doubt some of those people were were Christians. Very brutal deaths. And maybe even step back and realize that there's people that they'll go to the doctor. You know that? And that doctor is going to give them some news. You only have so many more days to live. And just like Jesus, they're staring their death in the face. That's what's happening here with Jesus. He's looking at the prospect of his terrible death. A great life-shaking trial. And we see here how our Lord reacted to this terrible situation. 
And we can realize something maybe as we analyze his reaction. Jesus was a perfect man, wasn't he? There was never a single thing Jesus did that was short of perfection. He is our perfect example. And anything that we see in his life, it could never be a sin. It could never be wrong even. It could not even be something short of the perfect spotless Lamb of God. Jesus don't get a pass because he's Jesus, right? No. He follows the exact same word of God that you and I do. Amen. And so as we look at Jesus here, we realize he was just as perfect in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was when he healed the sick. Just as perfect as when he preached a sermon. Just as spotless as when he hung on the cross. Just as pleasing to his Father as the day he ascended up into heaven. This day in the Garden. And furthermore, Jesus was the image of the invisible God. The scripture says God was manifested in the flesh. Well, that was Jesus. He was a perfect manifestation of all of the attributes of Almighty God. And when you look at Jesus, you see God. And I don't necessarily mean with your eyes. That's flesh, right? But I'm talking about that life that he lived, the actions he performed, the way he conducted himself. Everything was a perfect representation of his Father. Everything Jesus did, his Father would have did the same. God loved the world so much, the Father loved the world so much, that he would have did everything Jesus did. Amen? In just the exact same way. Because he and his Father were one. There was no variance between them. Like Father, like Son. And I'm just emphasizing this point, not to get into the, to the Godhead, but just to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus was more than just a perfect man, but his actions were a display of the very nature of Almighty God. Everything God wants mankind to know about himself, he reveals in the person of Jesus Christ. And we cannot look at what happens here in the garden and call it anything short of perfection. Keep that in mind. It's important as we analyze what's happening here in the garden. The Lord Jesus, the perfect Son of God, perfect in spirit, perfect in body, perfect in mind. There's nothing here that is displeasing to God. God was in no way displeased with Jesus in the garden. The Father, no way displeased. So with that in mind, let's, let's look at a few of these verses. Let me read uh, verse 32 again. It says, And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Set ye here, while I shall pray. And he taketh Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed, and to be very heavy. Very heavy. Now notice, notice something there in, in those two verses. As Jesus goes to pray, he, he takes all his disciples with him, right? And he says, you know, sit here while I go pray. But he, he takes three of them further. Peter and James and John. He takes them further. The rest are back in the distance, but those three, he wants them praying right there beside him. And in that simple act, we can see something that's apparent throughout the Gospels. Some of Jesus' natural friends were closer to him than others. Some people in the scripture that way were closer. And Peter and James and John, it really seems like they had even a, a, maybe a special friendship with Jesus. Not that he loved them more. Not that he cared for them more. But you know, as a natural human person, we're limited, right? Yeah. My eyes can only see in one direction. I 
Much as I might tell my kids I don't have eyes in the back of my head. You didn't hear that? I do. Not really. My ears can only hear so far away. My mind can only think so many thoughts. I'm limited. And Jesus, as a man, had those same limitations. But the God that was in Jesus, he's not so limited. There's no limit to what he can see. There's no limit to what he can hear. There's no limit to how many thoughts his mind can process simultaneously, right? How many things he can focus on. He can be the best friend to everybody at once, right? But natural man, we can be friends with everyone, but we are limited. And we have some friends in life that we just tend to be closer to, right? And Jesus, as a man, was the same way. He had some closer relationships with others than others. And here in the garden, as Jesus is coming into the greatest trial of his life, he takes his closest friends with him to pray beside him. You know, we might compare that to ourselves. Oftentimes when we're facing great trials, hardships, we'll often reach out to people and say, pray for me, won't we? Help, pray for me. And you know, when our trials is especially overwhelming, or a time when we're maybe very weak, very vulnerable, we tend to look to those we trust most for comfort, right? Jesus is doing the same thing. And what I hope you notice here is Jesus is doing that. He's leaning on his closest companions to be there for him. Jesus wasn't expecting them to change his destiny, but he just wanted someone to be there with him. And oftentimes when someone's great, facing a great hardship or a great trial, that's really all we can do, right? We can just be there for them. I can't walk on the water. I can't calm the raging sea. I can't heal. I can't make money appear out of nowhere. But we can certainly be there for somebody, can't we? And that's all Jesus wanted. He wanted someone to be there with him. He wanted to know they cared. And by seeing Jesus' example, we can can learn something here. And as Jesus, he, he sits here and he prays, he had Peter and James and John praying next to him. But they're tired, right? They start falling asleep on him. And look here what the Lord says in verse 37 to him. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto them, Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, Jesus asked the three of them just to watch and to pray with him but they ended up falling asleep on the Lord. And look, just how how Jesus talks to Peter, who kind of seems to be maybe his best friend in the natural. He said, Peter, you couldn't even stay awake with me? This is the worst trial of my life, Peter. You're falling asleep on me here, (laughs) right? We know uh, the Lord's going to be even more disappointed in Peter for all this is over with, but you couldn't even give me one hour of your time, Peter. Notice there, Jesus is disappointed in his comforters, isn't he? But Jesus, he does understand. He says there in verse 38, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He recognized their limitation, and he didn't hold it against them. You know, here below in the natural, no one will ever care for us like our Heavenly Father. No one will ever be able to comfort us like he can. And Jesus knew that. And you can detect that there in his answer. And so it's good for us to maybe keep that in mind when we're disappointed with our comforters. It's good for us to realize man is limited. Men can disappoint us. 
And we should probably maybe be prepared sometimes in life to see that and to show people grace, just like Jesus did. So I hope as we read those verses there that we, we catch that dynamic. Jesus asked his friends to be there for him. He was looking for them to support and comfort him. And he voiced his disappointment, and they failed to do that, right? Jesus felt a little let down by his friends. And the Bible tells us this even more clearly in another verse, because what's happening here, it is the fulfillment of prophecy in the Garden of Gethsemane. Turn back to Psalms chapter 69, and I'll, I'll read just one verse there. Psalm 69 is one of the messianic psalms pointing to Jesus. And I'll just get one verse, verse 20, in chapter 69. It says, Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. You know, that really starts plying there in Gethsemane. Jesus' fulfillment starts there. And it's telling us something very clearly about Jesus. He was looking and desiring for someone to take pity on him and comfort him. Black and white. And I don't have to guess what was in Jesus' mind, right? The Bible tells me. He was disappointed when Peter was sawing off logs, right? And he wanted someone to pray with him. The Bible tells me what Jesus was thinking. And maybe there's people who apply their own conceptions to the Bible, but really the Bible will interpret itself if we look at it right. And very clearly we see Jesus here actively sought for people to show him pity and comfort. And seeing that Jesus did that, maybe we can realize that that's maybe a normal thing to do when we're in a low condition. Jesus showed us a pattern. And he asked them all to pray, certainly, but he leaned most heavily on those closest companions. I hope we can see that. Turn back to Mark chapter 14, and we'll, we'll pick up another little aspect here. Maybe this is a bit of an unusual thought tonight, but I am going somewhere. <clears throat> Let me read verse 34 in Matthew, or rather Mark uh, 14. And Jesus said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death, Tarry ye here and watch. Now that's a pretty uh, strong thing Jesus said to his friends right there, isn't it? Mm -hmm. He didn't tell everybody, but he did tell his closest friends. And maybe we could read over that quickly and not feel the full weight of it. But this is a pretty big thing Jesus just said. Maybe I can paraphrase it. Jesus said, My grief is so great... I feel like I'm dying. My sorrow is so great, I feel like I'm going to die from it. You know, that's a, that's a feeling that I don't think a person could ever understand unless they felt it themselves. And this emotion that Jesus was experiencing was so overpowering, so strong, it made him feel like he was dying. And that's really something. Jesus is experiencing emotion so strongly, he felt like he was dying. And you and I, we may wonder, was he feeling maybe a, a special kind of grief here? Was he feeling something outside of the human condition? That's a good question, isn't it? 
It's a question I've wondered. Was this something supernatural maybe happening here, bringing about these feelings? But there is an answer. Go back to Isaiah 53 with me briefly. Because Jesus is also fulfilling another prophecy by having these strong emotions and feelings. And I'll just read uh, two verses there. As we ask a question, what was the nature of the deep sorrow and grief that Jesus was feeling? Isaiah 53, verse 3. He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So the answer to my question is right there in those verses. Verse 4 really spells it out for us. It says, yet we did esteem esteem him stricken and smitten of God, afflicted. Maybe that's our thought. But the the answer is really the first part of verse 4. Was his sorrow something supernatural, something otherworldly? No. What Jesus was feeling in Gethsemane, the grief and the sorrow that made him feel like he was dying, the Bible says that was our griefs, our sorrows, ours. The same kind of griefs, the same kind of sorrows that you and I face. That's what Jesus was feeling. He was experiencing that there in Gethsemane. And as I said before, I believe it was a magnitude greater than anything I've ever faced as an individual. And I've faced maybe some hard trials at times, but I've never sweated drops of blood. Jesus' emotional experience there in Gethsemane was the worst kind of an emotional experience a human being is capable of having. But it was still within the range of human emotions. Let me go back to Mark chapter 14. Let me just read that one more time. So it was our griefs, our sorrows. Mark 14, verse 34. And Jesus saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Jesus was experiencing our griefs, our sorrows. He's experiencing those emotions just the same way that you and I are capable of experiencing them. And his emotions were so powerful, so overwhelming, he said, I feel like I am dying. That was my Jesus. That's how he felt in his heart at that moment. He said, I feel like I'm dying. And he wasn't tied up. He wasn't in chains. He wasn't being beaten. He wasn't nailed to a cross. But these emotions he experienced were so powerful, he felt like he was dying. And when this happened, he didn't just keep it to himself, did he? He didn't bury it down and pretend like he wasn't feeling it, right? He looked over to his closest friends and he said, I am so overcome with grief and sorrow, I feel like I'm dying. Please, stay here with me. Pray with me. He tells his friends how he's feeling. That's really maybe something to think about, that aspect of it. You know, as you think about that, maybe I'd ask a couple questions and don't answer it. I usually don't ask for, just think about it, right? You know, if your friend came to you and said, I'm so overcome 
with emotions. I feel like I am dying. Maybe they're weeping. Maybe they look like an emotional train wreck. In John it says Jesus was in agony. How would we react to that? Why would we respond to that? There's an old song I really like. It says, If my Lord should come again, if he walked and talked with man, what if every friend he had was just like me? Would he feel welcome here? Or would he go away in tears? Am I all that I should be? Is he satisfied with me? What kind of friend would I be to Jesus? Amen? And I think of that as I read these verses. How would I have handled this situation? How would I handle a friend who had a breakdown here like Jesus did? Maybe none of you have ever had a friend like that, but I'll be honest, I've had quite a few friends like that in life. And not so long ago, I had many people, so many I probably have lost count of it, to be honest with you, who come to me on a regular basis looking for comfort with exactly these kind of emotions going on. And you love them. And your heart breaks for them. And you want to know the answer. How can I help this person? What's the right thing to do? You know, and I've met people who have a certain idea about how they handle it. (laughs) And where I come from, you would actually be rebuked for acting like Jesus did in Gethsemane. I've known people who would say, there's something wrong with you. They'd belittle you. They would shame you if you acted like Jesus did. All they care about is a smile on your face. And they don't care how they get it there, but they want it there. They don't even care if it reflects what's in your heart. Shut up and smile. And that's pretty well the exact words you would hear. Shut up and smile. People were explicitly forbidden from talking about their heartaches or their heartbreaks or their griefs or their sorrows. Everyone had to pretend that everything was okay all the time, no matter what. But I'd ask you a question. Can you make that fit in the life of Jesus? I have to say on that point more, but I'll continue along here. There's some more things I want to look at before I maybe go more into that. But Let me show you something else. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. And I'll read one verse there. Hebrews chapter 5. Again, speaking of Jesus here. It says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. He feared. That verse is talking about Jesus in Gethsemane. And there's two details I want you to catch there. One, it says Jesus was crying. Crying. Not a little crying, strong crying. With tears. And another translation says he was wailing and loud crying. It was an incredibly emotional experience that Jesus was having in Gethsemane. In other people, we might call it an emotional breakdown. We might. And it says there another thing. It says he feared. Jesus feared. Jesus was afraid. He was afraid to suffer what was coming. He was afraid of what was about to happen. It wasn't just grief and sorrow that overtook him, but he was also gripped 
by dread and fear. That's important. In the garden, Jesus experienced sorrow. He experienced grief. But he also experienced fear and dread. And those feelings became so overwhelming, he wailed and he cried. All with Peter and James and John right there beside to witness the whole thing. He wanted somebody to be with him. And those feelings in Jesus' heart, they didn't just start being there the day that he knelt down and prayed in Gethsemane. No. Jesus had been feeling that way for quite a long while. The fear, the dread, the sorrow, the grief, they had been a part of Jesus' life for quite some time. Go back to John chapter 12 with me. I'll, I'll add another verse maybe to help see that. And you can trace it through. You can go back to just about the point that Jesus started talking about these things. And Jesus was feeling this way for... Uh, at least a year. But here, John chapter 12, it's real clear here. I'll just use this one. And here it's Palm Sunday. We're a few days before the Garden of Gethsemane. And let me read just verse 27. Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Jesus said his soul was troubled. These troubled feelings are something Jesus had been dealing with quite a long while before Gethsemane. And that same thought he's praying for in Gethsemane is the same thing he's talking about here all these days before, right? He lets us know very clearly what he's troubled about, too. His impending death. Jesus, our Savior, the perfect Lamb of God, he was troubled. He was fearful. He was overcome with dread. Maybe that tell us something too about fear and dread. If our perfect Lord could have emotions like that, just like sorrow and grief, these are things we're all subject to as natural men and women. Those are feelings that can overwhelm us at times just like they overwhelmed Jesus. And I've got one more passage I'd like to read. Psalms chapter 55. And this is another one of the messianic psalms pointing to Jesus. And this is a prayer, the, the kind of prayer Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. A prayer that we might pray at times. Let me just read it here. Psalms 55, Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not thyself from my supplication. Attend unto me and hear me. I mourn in my complaint and make noise. Because the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they cast iniquity upon me and in wrath, they hate me. My heart is sore pained within me, and the terrors of death are fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling are come upon me, and horror hath overwhelmed me. Horror hath overwhelmed me. That, that verse can just brings home the magnitude, maybe, of what Jesus is feeling. Horror hath overwhelmed me. He's fearful, he's weeping loudly, he's visibly shaking, and it says, horror hath overwhelmed me. Did you know Jesus was overwhelmed by horror? Yes. It was an overwhelming, emotional, breakdown experience that Jesus had there. The same kind that any person is capable of experiencing. 
And look how this prayer ends. I'll, I'll just read the end of it. Very comparable to what Jesus is praying in Gethsemane. And I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then I could fly away and be at rest. Lo, then I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness, Selah. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and the tempest. Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. You know, as we consider these verses, it's pretty clear that Jesus did desire an escape from what was coming his way. He had a personal will, and he had a personal desire to avoid the hardship coming his way. And that was no sin. Brother Jesse's mentioned recently we should enjoy this life while we can, right? And there's nothing wrong with wanting to avoid suffering. Jesus showed us that, didn't he? It's not a sin to desire to avoid heartaches and sorrows. Jesus enjoyed the good days, and we do well to do the same. And you may wonder, maybe, if this is the first time you ever heard these things concerning Jesus. You may wonder, why has the church I went to never told me nothing like this before? In fact, maybe they told me the opposite of some of these things, right? Why didn't they ever show me an emotional side of Jesus? For all their knowledge, for all their understanding, they neglected the most important knowledge of all, the knowledge of Christ. And these things I say in this message are just the tip of the iceberg, to be honest with you, things that have been neglected. And I know where I come from. In 35 years, I don't ever remember anyone preaching the passion of Christ. Not once. In 35 years. How do you go 35 years and a church never preached the passion of Christ? Something's bad wrong. I tell you, something's wrong. But they can't preach these things. Because the Jesus they serve don't match these things. The Jesus they teach is not the Jesus of the Bible. They're following something false, something they've invented to justify themselves and their own wickedness, really. Amen. We must know Jesus, though, That's right. because this is life eternal, right. that we know God and Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent. Hallelujah. I'm glad I know him. Praise the Lord. And I'll tell you the truth. You and I live in an imperfect world. If you didn't know that, now you do. (laughs) (laughs) And even if we were totally perfect, just like Jesus, the fact that we live in an imperfect world means that sorrow and grief and fear and dread are a reality in this world. They're things we'll have to face at times and times, no matter how good of a Christian we are. And sometimes things can come our way like that. They do. And when they do, we can follow the pattern of Jesus. Hallelujah. Because his pattern was perfect. Right? (laughs) Of course. We can reach out for comfort or pity from our close loved ones. We're certainly able to do that. We can cry out to our Heavenly Father. We can even break down and wail and weep tears of sorrow and fear. Jesus did. And there was nothing wrong with Jesus. He was still perfect. He was still the image of the invisible God. And maybe that's hard to wrap our mind around, but it is the truth. It is the truth. If we'll read our Bible, it really actually tells us pretty clearly that God himself feels feels sorrow and feels grief, even dread. God himself feels those things. And the Bible tells us he feels those things because sin is in the world. The presence of sin has that very effect on the God of heaven. The presence of sin in the world causes the eternal God of heaven 
to experience those emotions. So it's understandable that the presence of sin and its effects will at times have that same effect on us. You know that? Right. It did on Jesus. And you and I, if, if we see someone in the state like Jesus was, we should offer them some help, some comfort. Yeah. Treat them like Jesus wanted to be treated. Right. He wanted someone to pray with him. He wanted his companions to be close to him. He desired someone to show him some sympathy, some compassion. That's how you treat someone in emotional distress, That's right? right? <laughs> My goodness, how hard is it? And if the only thing we have to offer someone like that is rebuke, then we should probably examine our hearts and try and figure out why we're giving place to the devil. Amen. Don't be like Job's comforters. No. You know, his comforters were helping him until they opened their mouths. <laughs> He was comforted by them as long as they were just sitting there quietly praying with them and meditating with them, right? right? He was comforted by their presence. And you know, if you don't know what to do with someone who's experiencing strong emotions, just pray for them and be there. Encourage them. Don't kick them while they're down. That's not a time to be hard towards someone. And let us look even maybe to a higher example. Let's look to the God of heaven for his example. Because how did God answer Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane when he prayed about his griefs, his fears, his sorrow? Did God answer Jesus by rebuking him? Jesus, how dare you act that way? <laughs> Is that what happened? The voice came from... No, that isn't what happened, right? Did God answer Jesus by piling on? Did Jesus ask for a fish and God gave him a snake to bite him, right? Of course not. Turn over to Luke 22. We'll see exactly how God answers Jesus' prayer when he is wailing and crying and sweating drops of blood overcome with horror and fear and sorrow and grief. Luke chapter 22, verse 43. And there appeared an angel to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The Father showed compassion to Jesus. He sent an angel to strengthen him. And I think maybe that's something we can relate to. Sometimes we pray earnestly. Sometimes we pray desperately. Maybe sometimes the presence of the room just changes. The presence just maybe comes in that room. A peace, a comfort comes our way out of nowhere. God speaks peace to our soul. And that's what's happening here with Jesus as he prayed. The angel comes from heaven and it strengthens him in his weakness. The strength he needed for what lied ahead. And again, I just want to finish by, by pointing back to my main theme of this message. Jesus was our perfect Savior. And if there's one thing I hope you might take away from this message tonight, the way Jesus behaved in Gethsemane was perfect. That's right. Because Jesus Amen. was perfect. Right. And anyone who would tell you the way Jesus acted was sinful behavior, they're probably a deceiver. And there are people in the world who do that. They take things that were in the life of Jesus and they'll tell us that's sin. And that really alone is all the evidence we need to know that they're deceiving us. It don't fit the life of Jesus. No man speaking by the Holy Spirit can call Jesus Christ accursed. You know that? Shame on the wicked people who would turn Jesus into a sinner. 
looking for someone to show comfort and compassion and pity. That's not a sin. Jesus did it. Feeling deep sorrow and deep grief, that is not a sin. Jesus did it. Being overwhelmed with horror. Feeling deep fear and dread is not a sin. Jesus did it. Having an emotional breakdown is not a sin. Jesus did it. But I'll tell you what is a sin. Denying comfort and compassion and pity to someone, that's a sin. Rebuking and condemning people for seeking comfort and compassion, that's a sin. Piling more weight on a person who's already in distress, that's a sin. And saying things that would turn Jesus into a sinner, well, that's blasphemy, honestly, at that point. That's real blasphemy. Some people don't even know maybe what real blasphemy is. I heard a person one time say, you blasphemed a preacher. (laughs) They don't even know what blasphemy is. The fact that they think it's possible to blaspheme a preacher, <laughs> that in itself might be blasphemy, you know what I mean? Because they're equating the preacher to God. It, it's shameful, honestly. Yeah. And these things I preach tonight, I, I don't preach them because I want any of you to feel any of the emotional distresses that we're talking about tonight. Amen. But I say them just to let you know these things happen to Jesus himself. And if you experience that, don't beat yourself up over it. You know, Paul said he wanted to know Jesus and the fellowship of his sufferings. And you know, when those things come upon you, you get a little taste of what Jesus experienced himself. And there's some things maybe I think you can only ever learn through a direct experience, you know it? And God has his ways of educating us. And I'm preaching this message not for the first time. (laughs) But I'm preaching it again because there's deceivers out there. Some of you sitting here, some of you listening online, some that will hear it elsewhere. I know you've experienced it firsthand. They told you you should be ashamed of yourself. You got something wrong with you. But I want you to know they don't even know what they're talking about. The very things they condemn you for, they would have to condemn Jesus Christ himself. And no one speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit can call Jesus Christ cursed. But that's exactly what they're doing. You don't ever... Got to be troubled by their words again. That's right. But you see, I, I sat and I watched a devil move unmolested against the saints of God. I watched Satan abuse and a torment person after person tell them it's wrong to seek pity. It's wrong to talk about your feelings. Tell them something was wrong with them for feeling sorrow and grief. Telling them they had the devil because they felt fear. I watched widows rebuked for mourning the loss of their husbands over and over. I watched people humiliated and shamed because they had a need in their life. You know, and the irony was the same devil who caused their panic attacks and anxiety attacks was the same one condemning them for feeling them. (laughs) My goodness, you know, and I watched the devil torture people like this. Abused people. And I watched as people fell into despair, into depression, I watched as the devil's victims had nervous breakdowns. I watched as the devil's victims lost hope and lost faith. I watched as the devil's victims were destroyed. I watched as some even committed suicide, brothers and sisters. You know, at a certain point you say, enough is enough. I can't stand by and watch this another day. I can't live with myself another day watching these things. And I'll just, again, be very clear. What was happening was not godly. 
was not spiritual. It was demonic. It was satanic. It was evil. It was abuse disguised with a cloak of righteousness. And anyone maybe that hear what I would say today, be free in Jesus' name. No one speaking by the Holy Spirit can say Jesus is accursed. And I'll say maybe to you the same thing to the last person that asked me what they ought to do. I told them, run for your life. (laughs) Run for your life. That's what I would do. Well, run where? Anywhere. But there, for goodness sakes. Because the thief has come to do nothing but to kill, to steal, and destroy. Run to the arms of Jesus. Hallelujah. And, you know, let me finish with this thought. You and I, we may come upon times in life where we face sufferings or hardships that have caused us to have emotions just like Jesus did that we read about tonight. But the thing about it is this. Jesus suffered so that we could be set free. And when those situations come upon you, you can plead with God just like Jesus did. And for Christ's sake, you can be delivered. Hallelujah. You don't have to voluntarily live with torment in your life. You don't have to voluntarily subject yourself to abuse. Jesus had to go through with the cross. There was no other way. But you and I, we are free because of Jesus. We can say no. We can walk away from abusive situations. That don't mean we won't be abused because abusers don't like to let people go. But we don't have to stay and voluntarily subject ourselves to abuse. You know, when you see people bearing false witness against you and trying to lure you into a trap and being dishonest, trying to trick you, insulting your wife publicly, doing it in front of your own little children and making the kids cry, you don't need to put up with that. God never called one of us to that. And if they say you have no right to get over that kind of thing, that's just the devil talking through them. You have every right to be angry over something like that. Just don't let your anger turn to wrath. Just turn around and walk away. That's the right thing to do. Just let them go. Because Jesus paid for our peace. Amen. And we can go before the throne of God asking him for that peace. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He personally understands everything we have faced as natural people. He is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. The worst emotional breakdown you have ever had, Jesus had one worse. (laughs) You know it? He's touched by the feeling of your infirmities. So just call out to him and you watch and you will be amazed. And just like the angel came to Jesus, God will send you peace. Hallelujah. He'll do something that will make a difference for you. I believe that with all my heart. Amen. Maybe let me close with a a little song again tonight. The same one I sang last time. I think it just fits these messages really well. And I'll just try it again. I'm not the best singer in the world, but I like this little song. Footprints of Jesus leading the way. Footprints of Jesus by night and by day. I'm sure if I follow, my life will be saved. Oh, saved, saved by the blood of his wounded feet. They led him to Bethany. Oh, that's where he stayed. They led to Gethsemane. And that's where he prayed. 
They led him to Calvary, salvation complete. Oh, led, led by the prince of his wounded feet. Oh, footprints of Jesus leading the way. Footprints of Jesus by night and by day. I'm sure if I follow, my life will be saved. Saved by the blood, oh, the blood of his wounded feet. Amen.